The Texas Observer was set to close suddenly after 68 years. Board members said the progressive publication had money problems and couldn't expand its audience. Then, a campaign to save the magazine reversed its fate. This is Listen in Lubbock. For Texas Tech Public Media, this is Listen in Lubbock. I'm your host, Sarah Self-Walbrick. Staff at the Texas Observer were blindsided in March when a news story revealed the magazine would close and cease publication. Then, an emergency appeal to help staff raised over $300,000 in just a few days. The magazine lives on. It's one of the most hopeful stories the journalism industry has seen in years. People showed they'll pay for reporting that holds the powerful accountable. For transparency, that includes me. I've subscribed to the Texas Observer for years because I value the work that they do. I also donated to the campaign to save it. Gabriel Arana is the editor-in-chief of the magazine. He joins us today to talk through the story and the Texas Observer's future. I'm so excited for this conversation, Gabriel. Thanks for having me, and thank you for your readership and support. So first, tell us about the history of the Texas Observer. How did things get started? So the Texas Observer was founded 69 years ago by Ronnie Duggar, our founding editor, as well as Molly Ivins, who's sort of become our patron saint. And we've been causing trouble for the last seven decades. The publication focuses on investigative journalism, as well as political reportage and political commentary. And we have a very diverse staff now. We try to make sure it reflects the state of Texas and the diversity we have here. And when we found out that we were losing our jobs from another publication, everybody got to work because this has been around for 70 years and we want to make sure that it's around for another 70. You mentioned Molly Ivins, who is one of the most famous names tied to The Observer. Tell us a little bit about her time at the magazine. Well, she was here for a bit. They founded the, the publication and then she was a writer for The New York Times for many years, but she always kept the observer in her heart and especially at the end asked her friends not to let it die. So uh, I felt the, the voice of Molly was calling out to us saying, please save the Texas observer. The legacy of that era is still really tied to the observer's reputation. How do you think that that plays into the magazine today? Well, I think the board, after failing to fundraise, surmised that the publication had failed to speak to a new, younger, more diverse generation of readers. I think that's really not true. We have an older audience when it comes to the print publication, but online our readership skews young, it skews more diverse than the older readership. I think it's mostly a question of bringing those two groups together. But the idea that the Observer failed to connect with younger readers, I think, is patently not true. And I think the success of the GoFundMe, which had both old Observer people pitching in to support, as well as people who had just heard about the publication, as well as younger readers, stepped up to help. So I think that this showed that there's a big community behind the Texas Observer, and it includes both older people like me and and younger readers. You've talked a little bit about your staff, but tell us a little bit more about who is currently on the team. 
Sure. Well, we have a team of 13 people, so a relatively small magazine. In leadership, we have digital editor Kit O'Connell, who is non-binary and writes about LGBTQ issues. We have Lisa Olson, who came from the Houston Chronicle. She's the deputy investigations editor and now spearheads our investigative coverage. We have Gail Reeves, who has a long career in, in Texas as well. She also has a Pulitzer We have two people on staff with Pulitzers, which is exciting. I come from magazine land, so Pulitzers are are newspaper people. But the line between magazine and newspaper and website, all of those lines are kind of blurring. What are some recent stories that you're proud of? One that I'm really proud of is our cover story in January, which took on the Biden administration for still separating immigrant kids from their families. I think it's important as a progressive publication that we hold the people on the left to account as much as we do people on the right. So that was a story where political people would probably say, you know, don't fight, don't fight your friends. But we see it as our job to tell the truth, no matter who it upsets. A story that was reported out of Lubbock that was recently featured in The Observer looked at the saga of Tumbleweed and Sage Coffee Shop, which has come under fire for providing things like the Plan B pill. Talk to me a little bit about covering the many, many diverse stories in our state and making sure that you're reaching kind of all corners of this huge piece of land. Yeah, so for that precise purpose, I think it's important that we have a diverse staff that reflects the diversity of the state. We have a series on maternal health that's coming up. It debuted in our previous issue, and this issue has the marquee piece in it, the one that's about to come out. We have people of color on staff, you know, who report about the communities that they come from. So I think we very much try not to be parachute journalists and just come into cities and come into stories that we have no connection to. When you hire from the communities that you're covering and hire people who are affected by anti-trans policies, by anti-abortion policies, you get much better coverage because they're plugged into the community and know what the discourse is there and can elevate it and educate everybody else. Absolutely. It's time for a short break. We'll be right back with more of our conversation about the Texas Observer. tuned in to Listen in Lubbock. I'm Sarah Self-Walbrick. The Texas Observer has a long history of publishing quality journalism in our state. That reputation almost came to an end last month. Editor-in-chief of the magazine, Gabriel Arana, is here to tell us more about the situation. So, Gabriel, tell us about what happened on March 26th when you got a call from the Texas Tribune's Sewell Chan. Yeah, I could never forget it. I was chasing around our 95 Golden Retriever in the living room. It's one of his favorite games and got a call. I saw that it was Sewell and thought to myself, what is he calling me for so late? And I picked up the phone and immediately he started talking and he sounded harried and rushed and said, we have a 2300 word story coming out. It's sensitive. It goes into the full history. You're in the story. And I interrupted him and said, what are you talking about? And he said, you don't know? I said, no. 
He said the board voted twice last week to shutter the publication and lay everybody off. And I just remember my heart dropping and my vision kind of blanked because I, you know, I care about the publication, but the publication is the staff. We have somebody who has a baby on the way. We have our McCann fellow, Josephine Lee, had just quit her longtime teaching job to switch to journalism. So immediately I thought of the staff and I said, can you hold the story until I call the staff? And he said, no, I'm sorry, which as a journalist, I understand. So I started calling the staff and I was about halfway through before the story was published and then everybody knew. And we got the official news the next day at 10 a.m. that the board came and met with the staff and read a proclamation saying that everybody was fired and the magazine was closing. They didn't take any questions. We asked them to stay on and almost everybody on the board left except for three people. And then we made a proposal to them, which was, you know, it's your job to fundraise for the magazine and publish us, which you have not done. Let us try. Give us the reins. And they said, OK. Uh, and we sent them a letter saying we want board reform. We want we want to keep the magazine open. And, and then we turned to our readers to ask directly for help. And started to go fund me and I was afraid it wouldn't get past $10,000 and said, just let this not be embarrassing. But in fact, we raised 350 over the course of two days, which is miraculous and amazing and brought a lot of the staff to tears. So on Wednesday, the board voted to rescind the layoffs and about half of the board left and we got some people that we suggested on the board and are now working with the president of the board, Lizzie Burr, who is wonderful. And I'm very, you know, despite this near-death experience, we're, you know, in the best position we've been in for a while. I mean, both editorially, I came on a year ago. We've had the editorial process figured out for six months, I'd say. But now, you know, the nice thing about the GoFundMe is that it woke up the entire donor community that has supported The Observer for decades. So we have, you know, wonderful support in the form of smaller contributions, but also the bigger donors have lined up and stepped up to fund the organization for the year. So I'm very confident that we'll be here next year and that we'll be here in five years and really hoping we're here in another 70. So were you expecting this at all? It sounds like you were really surprised. I mean, the board was very secretive for a long time. The person who led it came from a political campaign and I think that they're just used to not communicating with the staff and, you know, would always go into executive session, which we're not allowed in on to talk about the fundamentals of the magazine. So it came as a total surprise. I knew, I mean, it's not my job, but I watched the money. I could tell things were getting tight and the board kept asking for documents. So I knew that something was up and, the week before I asked the board, I wrote to them all and said, you know, I know something is up. I really think somebody should tell me what's going on. Let's work together to make sure we keep the publication alive and join efforts. This, um, yeah, this no talking to each other is not working. I heard nothing, it was radio silence. And then I got that call from the Tribune saying, you don't have a job in two days. And there was also no severance. So no severance, two days notice, and everybody's out of work. It was really insane. The Observer has had a few conflicts in recent years. In 2021, many staff members quit and said the magazine had a toxic culture. To be clear, this was before your time at the magazine, but can you address that? Sure, I, I started 
During a, an editorial crisis 18 months ago, I came on an interim basis and then we opened up because it's important for us to have an open application process. We posted the job, others applied, and I was selected, which I was very happy about because I love The Observer. The previous crisis, you know, is not mine to talk about. I think it's the story of the employees who were there at the time. And I know that they've been very active on social media sharing their stories. I mean, in short, the publisher left, the editor-in-chief left, the executive editor left, and then the... I think it's about six staffers left thereafter. So there was a lot of turnover. You know, the staff had sent a letter to the board asking for a meeting. And in response, the board stopped publication of the magazine and said they weren't happy with the coverage, which I think was a very hurtful thing to say to the staff that had worked so hard and done such wonderful investigative reporting. And I came in and I knew... (laughs) Before I met with the staffer the first time, one of the old staffers said, you're coming in on the heels of a beloved editor and everybody's going to hate you. And hate is a strong word, but I think, you know, coming in as the emissary of the board, you know, even though I said, I'm on all of your side, I'm a journalist, I don't have any loyalty to these people. I think that the actions of the board had really poisoned the well and made it a difficult workplace for people to stay in and feel that they could thrive in. Tell us a little more about how the board came to its decisions. What were the issues here? So it's hard to know because they were so secretive about everything. But one secret vote after another secret vote that we knew nothing about. One of the things I said in my email to the board before all of this happened is that we'll make better decisions together. Um, And I mean, I, I think... The leadership on the board didn't really know the history of the publication. They don't know the readership. They even said, well, I mean, because they had an entire communications plan planned and said, you know, we don't think this will be bigger than an Austin story, which it (laughs) was really silly of them to underestimate us that way because it immediately caught the attention of the national media. So I can't say very much about their decision-making process in the past other than from the outside, it looked very disorganized and a mess. You know, I, I can say that under the new the new president, communication is, I mean, night and day. Let's just say it was a hot mess, and I'm really happy about the new energy on the board and the love for the observer. You know, I, I was talking to our board president, and she really wants to do everything right after the board alienated all of the various constituencies that love the magazine. And I told her, it's very obvious to everyone on staff that your heart is in this and that you love the magazine. And I think that's the most important thing. You mentioned that one of your biggest concerns was for your staff. Tell us a little bit more about how they took the news. Outraged. I called the two people who would be the hardest hit economically first. Our fellow, Josephine Lee, her fellowship is sponsored by Tom Belden in honor of his friend David McCam, who's a very famous University of Houston journalism professor. And I said, you know, David will take care of you. I don't think you have anything to worry about. And indeed, Tom wrote Josephine that night and said, we have you covered. I told Gus Bova, senior writer and assistant editor, and he was just shocked and outraged that he had two days notice to try to find another job, to try to find some way to feed himself because his wife is having a baby in uh, a baby observerite, uh, the first one during my tenure. And Gus has been on staff for years as well. 
Yeah, Gus has been on the staff longer than anybody else and has stuck with us through some hard times and, you know, exemplifies everything the publication should be, you know, about very committed to social justice, wonderful writer, brilliant, wonderful human being. So in some, the staff was very shocked at the way they found out. Somebody said, I shouldn't have to find out I lost my job on Twitter. And yeah, so when the board met with us the next day to give us the official news, everybody was pretty riled up, especially when they said, we're not taking any questions because this isn't a press conference. It's a small magazine with a small board and you're treating it like they're shutting down a Tesla plant. A campaign to raise money for the magazine launched quickly. Give us some insight into what was happening behind the scenes at that point and through that fundraising campaign. So there are lots of debates about what exactly we should say, what exactly we should do. I remember when Kit started, they interrupted me during a meeting and said, I don't mean to challenge authority. And I said, well, it's you're welcome to challenge authority here. That's what we're all about. So it's a very inclusive process deciding what we should say and what we should do. I kind of stuck my neck out ahead of others at the beginning just because you know, when people fear for their jobs, you know, they feel for their well-being and don't want to do anything that will jeopardize them economically. And we thought it was very important to feature the staff itself as a campaign move forward. So updates on the fundraising, as well as news from the board came from different staff members. I mean, there's some talk among the board about restarting the publication after shuttering it, which is very difficult. I mean, first, because you have a perfectly wonderful staff there to begin with, but for a legacy magazine, for an institution like that, people like Gus, who have been here a long time, are incredibly important to the voice and mission of the publication. And if you get whole new people, it changes what the magazine's about. And so the staff are the Texas Observer. And I think the board also failed to to realize that and just treated it like a brand where they could fire everybody and then restart two months later. And obviously people will not want to apply to a workplace that, that does that. So It's time for another break. Stay tuned for more of our conversation with the Texas Observer's Gabriel Lorana. We'll be right back. This is Listen in Lubbock, and I'm your host, Sarah Self-Walbrick. The Texas Observer was recently saved by a crowdsourcing campaign after the board that manages the Progressive magazine almost closed it. Now, how do they turn that support into sustainability? Let's continue our discussion with Gabriel Arana, the editor-in-chief of the magazine. Gabriel, tell us what the status of the magazine is right now. Financially, we're in a much better position than we've been since I've been here. The GoFundMe, which is mostly small donors, really saved our bacon. But the leadership realizes that we have to make sure that this is sustainable long term. And I think, you know, I've been at progressive magazines in the past. I was at the Huffington Post and Mike.com, a millennial news site. And I think that this sort of mission-driven progressive magazine is different from other publications. And I keep saying to people as we're having conversations about how to move forward that you're never going to get the Texas Observer to generate a profit and 
be entirely self-sustaining. It's better to think of them as a, as a cause that needs supporters, both big and small, to keep going. I think that the answer, I, I wrote a piece for The Nation that should be going up tomorrow about this very question. And I said the labor movement, which centers workers, I think uh, offers a good model for how we should move forward. Practically speaking, nobody's figured out how to recover from Facebook and Google stealing all of our money. So I think it'll be a, a question that we answer in different ways and try different things as we move forward. We're about to launch our membership campaign, which usually happens in the spring, which when people sign up to subscribe, they're supporting us longer term. So the, the million dollar question is, how do we make sure that the Texas Observer is here in 70 years? And I mean, I think it's relying on our readers and communicating with them and nurturing this relationship and do what you love and the money will come. I mean, not quite. Um, you have to ask for it. But I think that seeing this as a cause and a movement rather than a business where you're trying to generate a profit is the first paradigm shift I think you need to start raising money for us. Those of us in public media understand that dynamic. Some of the reasons the board gave for closing the magazine were financial issues and a limited, stagnant audience. What are y'all doing to address those issues specifically? Well, that quote made, I mean, it was so frustrating to hear the people on the board talk about our audience, talk about them in such an insulting way, because none of them are journalists. So I, yeah, I mean, I just think that's very much not true. And if you look at our readers, and if you look at the publication and the way it's talked about on social media, it's a very diverse audience. And the idea that we fail to connect with younger people is just patently not true. I mean, the board's entire job is to raise money. And they did not. And so immediately they looked for a scapegoat. And I guess the readers are who they wanted to blame. And yeah, never blame the reader. <laughs> yeah, I, our readers are wonderful and have done nothing but support us. And when asked, they stepped up with their pocketbooks to show that support and to show that love for the observer. So to say that they aren't connected or don't care is not true. And I think the success of the campaign and the enormous outcry from the public, from readers, from former members of the board, from former editors, proved very much that that's not true. What can people expect from the Texas Observer going forward, specifically when it comes to y'all's coverage? Yeah. So as I mentioned earlier, we're about to debut our maternal health series because a lot of the focus since the Dobbs decision from the Supreme Court came down overturning the right to abortion has rightly been on women's access to reproductive health care. But it also affects all of these other, you know, domains of health care that women have to encounter. I mean, OBGYNs are fleeing the state. Um, medical students who, um, you know, are, are going through OBGYN training now have to go out of state to get that training, which is no substitute for actually doing it here and, you know, working with a doctor who performs abortions and does other reproductive care on a regular basis, you know, is what the model was before. And now they have to go for a short clinic out of state and then come back. So it's really been calamitous to, to women's health overall. And we you know, our series is trying to to show that, to bring those stories to light. We always try to highlight the people directly affected by bad policy. We also have another series that we're about to wrap up, Rivers in Texas and the the threats to them, both from big business, which is trying to draw on the water and polluting it left and right, you know, as well as all of the people in Texas who depend on it for drinking water. 
So that's also coming out in our next issue. But we have, yeah, we're sort of covering everything, the attacks on LGBTQ people, this whole drag ban, you know, moral hysteria. There's a lot to cover and the staff care deeply about what's going on in Texas and the people of Texas. And yeah, we're closing the magazine this week and um, it was nice to take a break from all of the, the drama and the fundraising to, to focus on journalism once again. To do the job that you were hired to do. What message do you have for the magazine's supporters after going through all this? Thank you for your support. It made everybody cry. And we didn't, I mean, you always assume the readers are, are there. Sometimes it can feel that you're writing into a void. And the response to our SOS showed that you know, we're not writing into a void and people care about the coverage and it's meaningful. And yeah, I'd, I'd say thank you and please stick with us. And we feel like our journalism is the way to give back to people who pitched in. So we have a wonderful new issue of the magazine coming out that I'm excited to share with everyone. And you should go to texasobserver.org to both read what we have for free. We are very adamant that all of our journalism should be free and not behind a paywall. So you can read for free, or if you want to become a subscriber, you can do that and we'll be even happier. This story has made me feel hopeful about journalism in a way that I, frankly, just don't always feel. What do you think this example can teach us about the state and future of our industry? So I think it shows that the people who are in charge and think of themselves as the business sense in the operation don't always have the answers. And that those in charge should listen to the people who know the audience the best because it is those people who you're trying to activate and inspire. And I think that journalists who are used to communicating with the public and used to communicating with their readers are, you know, I, I'm not a money person. As soon as we got that, we, we got the $350,000, I handed the keys over to the business manager and said, take, you know, keep this money away from me. So the actual management of the money, I think the business people can continue to do. But I think collaboration between the people making the business decisions and the editorial people is really important. And because the journalists, I think, know the issues and know the readership best and and how to activate them. That's all the time we have for today. I want to thank Gabriel Arana of the Texas Observer for sharing his story with us. I'll link to several stories about and from the Texas Observer in the web version of today's show. You can find that in more local programming at ttupublicmedia.org. Until next time, thanks for listening in. 